Hey everybody, welcome to the 107th episode of the JDO Show. I'm your host, J. David Osborne, coming at you from Seoul, South Korea. It's a nice rainy day out here. Today on the show we have Joe Malazzo. He's the author of Crepuscule with Nelly, a surreal and dense book about Thelonious Monk and his wife Nelly. We talk about a lot of cool shit in this one. Consciousness, Philip K. Dick, how reading weird shit makes you feel weird, maybe go a little bit crazy. So hey, enjoy that. And as a note, it is the summertime, perfect time to get your books fixed up. So if you need any editing work done, feel free to shoot me an email at jdavidosborne at gmail.com or go to Twitter, add me at brbjdo, uh, and uh, DM me, and we'll talk about getting that fixed up. I do the edits. Anyhow, without further ado... Please do enjoy this 107th episode of the JDO Show with Joe Malazzo. All right. Hey, Joe, thanks for coming on the JDO Show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. We were talking a little bit before I pressed uh, record, and you you had mentioned, what what's the name, Lewis, Lewis Hyde? Yeah, Lewis Hyde. He's, um, I guess he's sort of an anthropologist slash cultural critic. He's most famous for two books. One is called uh, Trickster Makes This World, which is this really amazing analysis of trickster tales from every mythology you could possibly think of um strong concentration on um native american trickster tales Mm -hmm. um but he also talks about um the mythic stories surrounding hermes um african trickster tales um but his first book is a book called the gift which is um an analysis of how economic exchange can work in artistic communities and how that can be a model for um, different economies overall. Um, And and part of the main point of that book is that if you're participating in an artistic community, most forms of economic exchange are built around giving things away, making gifts, as it were. Um, And it's a a beautiful book with some beautiful ideas. And uh, at the same time, it's somewhat frustrating in that you feel a problem that can never be resolved, which is um, it's great to give things away and to also receive things for free, but the the balance and proportion will probably never be there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think that especially with the internet and the kind of um, balkanization of different professions into clicks, if you will, uh, it becomes difficult because if you have a gift economy, but hey, this, this person over here makes chairs and this person plants corn and this person goes out and hunts. And then, you know, that guy over there, he makes some pretty dope paintings or poems or he says, he's, you know, he's a storyteller. He's the, you know, he'll tell you shit around the campfire. Like that works if you have kind of an Avengers team of artisans that are all kind of doing different things that it just becomes so difficult now where everybody is in kind of a writing click you know and it's sort of like do you want do you want more writing is that really is that like do you even want that as a gift and then yes the second, and, and oh i'm sorry yeah, are people willing, no, i was just gonna say are people willing yeah are, are are other people willing to receive it exactly because again yeah i mean with just i bring this up a lot but with netflix and you know um all the different kind of books out there that people actually want to read um it becomes really difficult as somebody who has, you know, like me personally, like I, I write kind of weird, surreal shit. I know that you do too, quite obviously. Uh, and it's one of those things where it's like, oh man, how do I convince somebody to look at this instead of watching The Outsider on Netflix starring Jared Leto? You know? <laughs> oh, God help that person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing. I think also... Um, there's a certain amount of training that we all go through in this culture, particularly, uh, where we're also told that unless the um, cultural expression that we're consuming is educating us in some very specific way about the way the world is or the way the world could be better, unless these narratives are, um, for lack of a better term, salvific in some way, like they, aren't, they aren't worth consuming. Um, there's a, a zeitgeisty element to the things that get talked about. Um, and there's, 
it seems like there's little room for, and, and in some cases I've d- encountered, open disparagement of work that, um, for lack of a better term, wants to address things that are more timeless. Mm. Um, because, well, there's, I think, several reasons for that. But it's been an interesting thing to observe. It's almost like, who's got time for that right now? There are all these problems in the world that we have to solve. Oh, by the way, art's going to be the thing that solves those problems. Um, I don't know that there's historical precedence for that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say it couldn't happen. Um, as someone who's a little bit older, perhaps, uh, I, I observe that with some, um, I don't want to say skepticism, but I, 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 I observe it. Let's just put it that way. Um, I'm also a big believer in when we talk about diversity and inclusion, that, that we need to think very broadly about that. And that includes very different points of view about what art is and can do, particularly narrative art. Um, and I don't necessarily read novels because I want them to um, produce in me a feeling of wokeness. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and that seems, that seems to be a, a condition for a lot of people to pick up something and give it their attention. You never know, however, what you're reading, how, how what you're reading is going to illuminate you or change you in some way. Um, and sometimes the works that advertise their or signal their worthiness in that respect the most are the ones that are least worth reading. <laughs> well, I think that uh, it all kind of, to me, comes back, because you were talking about, you know, the utilitarian value of a book. Yes. And I become extremely skeptical of that because especially... Here we go. We're going into fucking conspiracy territory. <laughs> but when you kind of look at the history of like the MFA, right? And mm-hmm. you you look at its like very clear sort of CIA backing, sort of anti-communist bent. Um, mm-hmm. And you look at Hollywood in general and where the funding for that comes from, sort of anything that makes it into the mainstream. What is it? What kind of control mechanism is it? Because it's not even a question to me as to whether or not it is a control mechanism. It's a question of what kind it is. And I think that when you start to look at, for example, art that presents itself as being woke, what have you, what what, what is that actually trying to say? Because I'm too cynical to believe that it actually has its heart in the right place and that it's actually trying to do the thing that it says that it wants to do. That's why I got so much shit for this. So I'll just briefly touch on it and then I can move away from it like a hot potato. But it's like when, uh, you know, like when Black Panther came out and it was all the ads were positing it as a revolution and what have you. Um, And to my mind, I saw that in a meta way as a control mechanism for actual revolution that was kind of beginning to foment within these kind of disparate communities, you know? And it's almost it struck me as a kind of release valve for that, where they can, you know, by they I mean uh, liberal people, not black people, but liberal people can say, oh, we're, we're making strides forward, completely ignoring the fact that it still takes place within this completely capitalist awful framework, you know. Right. And yeah. uh, so I guess that's just kind of like an example that I use to talk about, like when you have something come out that like the biggest bestseller recently was uh, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. And yeah. you talk about like a utilitarian, um, <laughs> like this is, you know, you need to stand up straight and clean your room. There's perhaps value in that, but I always wonder, you know, what what are they what are they trying to do? They're trying to make nice, good little citizens. And then you read uh, books that are a bit trickier, a bit tougher, maybe don't make you feel so good. And instead of being this kind of release valve for all these pressures, it almost kind of just turns that up a bit. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. No, it does. I mean, what you're, what you're as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, at some level, most novels published by the big five New York publishing houses are, in a sense, self-help literature under a different name mm. and use, making, uh, creating self-help literature using different um, tropes. 
but the the point of the books is is not really what's in them it's the the effect that they're supposed to have on the reader right mm-hmm. um which is very utilitarian so you're going to be a better person for having read this book and 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 almost all of the marketing um is 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 directed toward or is basically uh putting that message out there in various ways shapes and forms um and that's a wonderful thing to believe. Um, I don't believe that reading Jonathan Franzen or um, Dave Eggers is going to make me a better person. Sure. And I've, I've read both of them. I actually find that my favorite Jonathan Franzen book is the one that he has disowned the most. Which one is that? <laughs> His first novel, The 27th City, which I get why he um, has repudiated it because it is imitative in a lot of ways it's him trying to do the big postmodern novel thing mm-hmm. but it's a really fascinating failure in a number of respects um it also succeeds on a number of levels um it's an interesting book uh it's it's sad i mean it's still in print you can still buy it. you can still read it you can find used copies of course um but like sort of the meta narrative that he's that he has created for his own career and what happens to that book in that meta narrative is really fascinating. Um, you don't feel better about yourself after reading it. It, mm. it grapples with really difficult issues and it says, look, there's probably no solution to these things. Um, just be aware of the difficulty that this represents. <laughs> right. And I think that, you know, the, the not necessarily feeling good, is so important. And I'm glad you brought it up because it's an idea that I attempt to articulate on this podcast as often as I can. Because I bring up books like Blake Butler's 300 million. And mm-hmm. right now I'm on a super big Gary J. Shipley kick, um, which I think I've actually probably worked through all of his books by now. But um, when you read these books, they don't, they make you feel ugly and gross. There's this sort of concentration on you know bodies disintegrating and phlegm and shit and piss and blood and it's repeated ad nauseum for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages and as you read it you go into a kind of evil trance (laughs) where you've become sort of zombified by this text and to somebody who was coming at books from a perspective of how can this book help me that some people have just haven't really been getting what I've been laying down basically where it's like, this makes me feel bad. And I like that about it. I think maybe, maybe the closest, closest example actually would be certain types of music. You know, people who like to listen to grindcore or Mm -hmm. what have you like that to me, I could never get into it because I'm kind of what we're talking about. Books are my shit. So I'm able to be more nerdy with that, but music, I'm a straight up pop guy, like just straight up pop. So, but you know what I mean? Like people listen to that and there's, you can't tell me that that sounds good. It sounds good to you, but good in the sort of universally accepted term. Like that's not good, but you like what it does to you. You know what I mean? Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's also an artistic tradition of trusting the artist to go to a place that we wouldn't want to go to ourselves in reality and wanting to accompany them on that journey in a um, sort of prosthetic sense. I mean, in some ways, that's what a lot of um, blues musicians do, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or it's kind of uh, shamanistic, shamanistic, right? Like, um, the artist is this person who can kind of move between everyday reality and this other thing that we know is out there, but we tend to avoid because we understand the danger that lies in that realm. Um, but the artist goes to that place for us and reports back, and we get some sense of it um, at the same time that we're not completely protected from being exposed to it. You know what I mean? Totally. But they, they mediate, right? And I think um, what you're talking about with Blake's work, that kind of applies. Like Blake is someone who is willing to go to a place inside of himself that a lot of a lot of artists uh, are not comfortable going. Um, 
and he's okay with what he finds there and he finds value in the act of going to that place and just saying look what i found and guess what that place is inside m- most everybody else too whether they want to admit it or not mm-hmm. um heck the last presidential election proves that <laughs> yeah no totally i think that the way that i would think about it might be you know you have a face and every time you look in the mirror you have that face you might put makeup on it, you might wish that you had a different face, but that's your face. And it's Mm -hmm. almost like we have each and every one of us has this inner, you know, unique as a thumbprint kind of interface. And when you go down and you look at that face, sometimes it's fucking ugly, sometimes it's pretty. But the maybe the quality of the art for me depends on how honestly I perceive you as transcribing that inner face. You know, that's really interesting because um, uh, there's a novel by Jason Snyder that's in the same series as, as um, Crepuscule with Nelly called Family Album. And, I mean, it's a brutal book, um, it, it beautifully brutal. But one of the things that, that Jason does in that book that I find really fascinating is there's an incredible amount of attention and description of – attention given to and description of facial expressions. Hmm. Um, and I remember asking him about that and he had a beautiful answer for me that's out there somewhere on the internet, but, um, the literature of the face is actually a really fascinating uh, thing to me because you would think there was, there would be, um, more critical writing on that topic. I mean, you know, it just makes sense, right? Like, you know, the face is where we interface with each other to a great extent, um, but in that book, he foregrounds the face to such an extent and, um, you know, he's willing to, I mean, it, it's almost like a phenomenology of facial expressions and what the face is doing um, both, um, or I should say what the face is capable of both from a sort of willed perspective, like with will behind it, mm-hmm. and also from a uh, sort of reflexive um, position, right? Um and, and and that's one one of the one of the ways that you understand the main character in that book is his own relationship to his face, and he spends a certain amount of time looking in the mirror, practicing certain facial expressions. And isn't that funny that one of the I think maybe it might be Elmore Leonard's ten rules for writing is never huh? have a character look in a mirror. <laughs> the more well, and more you the more and more you move on the more you realize that writing advice in general is just pretty pointless as far as i can uh, tell yeah i used to joke when i taught creative writing more regularly about how like first day of class i would usually make the joke of well i'm gonna get all the lessons out of the way on the first day and it's you know write what you know find your voice I can't remember what the third one was. And it's like, there, I boiled most creative writing instruction down to the three sort of like standard pieces of advice you always get. Mm-hmm. Now, now that we've taken care of that, <laughs> let's talk about all the other stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I think that um, advice can also be, to, to kind of bring it back to something we were talking about a few minutes ago, just advice in general, especially writing advice, I'm always extremely suspicious of it. I recently read um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's uh, Skin in the Game. Mm-hmm. Who, um, I liked, you know, I like to read a broad spectrum of stuff. So Taleb is, you know, this libertarian kind of douchebag guy. But I find a, a lot of value in what he says about probability and, you know, kind of rationalizing luck in a way that I find really interesting. But mm-hmm. the specific thing that is... Um, kind of relevant to what we're talking about is that he's basically beware people who sort of give you advice with absolutely no skin in the game, you know? So a piece of advice from, say, your publisher or your editor is valid because that person obviously wants your book to succeed. But uh, people who've sort of made a career off of giving advice for no other reason that, you know, maybe people will click on their blog and buy their self-help book or whatever. You got to be extremely cautious of people like that. And I tend to think that it's, I think it's a little bit insidious, especially when they also are authors, because 
it feels like the more time people spend reading advice, the less time they might spend actually writing. And so, hey, less competition, you know? We love in our culture, we want the answer. We don't want the long involved narrative that explains why the answer has validity. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very solution oriented in that way, I think. Um, and, you know, I've certainly seen that in uh, mostly adult classes that I have taught in creative writing. Um, where, uh, you know, there's this hope uh, that that students will often bring into the classroom of this is the, the person, the teacher, has got like the secret formula that hasn't been shared with me, you know, and I'm going to come out of here knowing exactly what it is that I have to do to bring my idea to fruition, to, 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 to make that into a real thing, a book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately... <laughs> the secret formula that I dispense is, well, you have to really get to know yourself very, very, very well. And you also have to establish a certain sort of critical distance with regard to yourself. Um, cause that's kind of what being an artist is all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's not what they often want to hear <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because that's not, um, that's not like checking, uh, checking boxes off a list, right? Yeah. Uh, checking things off a list. Um, it's much more uh, experiential and, um, you know, it, it's a method, but it's going to, you know, obviously it's going to be different for every single person. Yeah, uh, it's, it's looking at writing as a, as a, you know, making a product, you know, it's, yeah. hey, what are the rules that I can follow? What are the, the five easy steps? You know, you see that online all yeah. the time with working out in particular. I have <laughs> no idea how men's magazines continue on and on and on and on uh actually i do know uh but my point is <laughs> when they you know these this is the new ab ripper exercise or this is the new you can you know blast your biceps and yeah. it's like look um there's like four major exercises that you really kind of need to do everything else is sort of extra and the thing is, it's just that over time you start to learn how your body works and what works for you and what doesn't and how much you can pick up and how much you can't pick up. And it really does become this sort of interesting flow state that you get into. Um, but people just keep going back to like, okay, what what else can I, can, I really want to blast my biceps or I really want to, you know, get this, no, you know, blast your novel in 10 days. It's like, well, you know, I mean, it might not be ready to come out yet you know you had mentioned um earlier the kind of shamanic aspect of it are you sort of a, a woo type guy or are you more like two feet on the ground i would consider myself a fairly down-to-earth kind of person um uh you know i in in talking about my own work um it it's uh I mean, I'm, you know, like if I have a big subject, it's probably consciousness, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, And I'm fascinated by that subject and what that can mean. Um, And now is actually a really interesting time to be alive um, because our notions of consciousness are radically expanding. Um, And that's probably one reason why I was always drawn to the novel, because the novel seems to me or or the novels that really got me excited about novel writing uh, were always explorations in consciousness. Um, you know, uh, and sometimes in, in ways that, that are problematic, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, my experience of the modern novel, like the high modern novel, um, there's a kind of fetishization of mental illness and, uh, um, what would then have been considered disability, which is really kind of interesting. I mean, that, that goes back to like Virginia Woolf and Faulkner and even, uh, Stein, Gertrude Stein to a certain extent. Um, and I, I get what's going on there. Um, in a, in a, in a present day context, it's, it's something to think more carefully about. Anyway, I'm digressing. Um, no, it's interesting. So I guess that that's kind of abstract and abstruse in a sense, because consciousness is such a slippery thing. Um, but at the end of the day, it's grounded in, well, it's grounded in the body, and it's grounded in perception. Um, I think one of the most profound books uh, I've read in the past 15 years or so is a little book by uh, Nathalie Sereau, 
one of the very first of the new novelists in in France called Tropisms, hmm. which is a, a fictional exploration of states of consciousness that don't really count as thought. Um, they're sort of, um, I mean, the, the title Tropisms refers to a phenomenon in uh, plant life where plants um, turn towards light sources. Yeah. Right? And we don't think of plants having consciousness. Again, that's something that's being explored right now in various sciences. Um, and some people believe that plants have a form of consciousness. They certainly have electrical impulses running through their bodies. <laughs> yeah. Are comparable to what happens in the human brain, right? Anyway, um, so what what Thoreau is doing in that book, and it, it ultimately becomes a, a social critique, um, is trying to get to that state of mind that's somewhere between perception and thought, right? So it's 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 somewhere between present and retrospection. It's a really fascinating little book. And of course, it reads very quickly. It's it's short, and there are these sort of little prose sketches uh, that sometimes just feel like anecdotes. Um, but you sort of walk, or I walk away from that book um, being reminded of all of the, the stuff that happens mentally with us as human beings that um, is extremely difficult to narrativize, but makes up the bulk of our life. Yeah. Right. And the other thing that's interesting about that book, I would say, is that it was written in the 20s and 30s, I believe. It was definitely published in the late 30s. And um, it's definitely looking forward to a model of consciousness that is um, sort of the model right now, which is consciousness is not continuous, hmm. right? Consciousness is actually a discontinuous phenomenon. So Soro is kind of writing in that mode at the same time that she is surrounded by narratives that are advancing the stream of consciousness notion. Right. That, mm -hmm. that consciousness is actually a continuous stream of language and thought and processing of stimuli and stuff. Um, and I find that really fascinating as well. Yeah, it almost makes me think of. Um, I feel this kind of pull within some small sections of society kind of moving back toward a more animistic view of uh, the world, if you will, and consciousness in particular. There's a book. Uh, by a guy named Eduardo Cohn called How Forests Think. Yeah. And uh, your sort of description, like he go, it's it's a pretty dense book and he gets into sort of like the semiotics of like native people's onomatopoeia and, you know, the animals that live within that forest and the forest itself, but how it all kind of from from this particular tribe and I'm blanking on the name of the tribe that he stayed with for all these years, the, they're kind of... Um, connection to, ugh, I hate words like connection because it starts <laughs> to sound like ugh, the noble savage type thing. But there's sort right. of like their ability to navigate non-human actors yep. within their space is very, very interesting. And it does, to my mind, what you're saying and what um, what I'm talking about is so interesting to me because it kind of bleeds into this idea that I can't stand recently that the brain is just sort of this, you know, computer, you know, yes. I can't, what? I can't fuck with that at all. It just yeah. annoys me. Um, uh, there's a great novel by uh, Joseph McElroy called plus, which is sort of a science fiction novel, but it's also this pretty radical exploration of language because it is, the premise of the novel is um, a scientist has, has been diagnosed with a terminal illness, so he has volunteered his brain, a kind of wet computer, if you will, mm -hmm. to become incorporated into the CPU of an orbiting solar satellite. Oh, and the novel is told from the perspective of a brain slash mind reawakening to a new, well, awakening to a new consciousness, which is sort of this cyborg consciousness, with the memory of what it used to be. Mm. And uh, it's one of the more difficult novels I've ever read just because it's it's almost not written in English. Like, right, you right, look right. at the words, and they're like, these are recognizable English words. But the way that they're assembled is something completely different. I mean, it's this incredibly um, 
bold and also uh, strangely empathetic undertaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it does call into question, and this was written in like, I guess that book was published in 1977 or so. It, it calls into question those very models of the mind, right? Like, obviously, there is a material uh, organ that the mind is attached to, right? Which is the brain. But the relationship between brain and mind, we, it, I'm very uncomfortable with this um, narrative that's advanced from uh, neuroscience that we have that figured out. Or that oh, we're on yeah. the path to figuring that out. Yeah, no, we're we're on the wrong. Tr- uh, do you, have you read anything by Bernardo Castrup? I don't believe I have. He's an interesting guy. He's um, he works at uh, or had worked for a time at at CERN with oh, uh, okay. the Large Hadron Collider, mm-hmm. and he's got a bunch of interesting books that sort of all sort of cross the these lines that we're sort of drawing. Uh, there's one that he does. He, it's kind of it's called more than allegory. It's kind of an update oh. to the Joseph Campbell storytelling uh, uh, line of thought. But the one that's sort of more relevant to what we're talking about here, he has one called "Why Materialism Is Baloney." Um, <laughs> and to my like reading that, the idea that um, mind with a capital M is sort of bigger than the brain. The whole idea that you know the brain is sort of a radio that can tune into. Oh. A frequency rather than something that generates it uh, is really compelling to me, and I think he makes a really good case in this. If if that's you know if that's might not be it either, but I think that what folks like him and others like him are able to really do is to sort of kind of poke holes in because science is so sure of itself. You know, it's so you know oh we got it we figured it out. It's it's actually. The, the, the smallest thing isn't an atom now, it's a, it's, a, it's a string, it's these little strings. Right. And you're like, okay, cool, but like, what's, what's like underneath that? Like, what's, what's the interiority of a, of a molecule? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's my kind of rambling way of saying that I'm pretty excited that if I'm understanding you correctly, you are also not satisfied with this kind of weird materialistic brain is a meat computer thing. No, no, I think that we ignore other models of the mind at our peril. And again, I will say almost as a punchline, which is funny, look at the results of the last presidential election. Mm -hmm. Any sort of proof that Freud for all of Freud's issues, um, People are not rational actors. And the last presidential election, <laughs> like whatever side of the issues you're on, um, I think that there's there's plenty of proof in the results of the last, like, you know, just look at all the projective models that had one candidate winning. They were based on a particular narrative and scientific methodology. And it's like, you can trust the numbers. And I remember reading tweets by certain people saying, you know, if if the outcome is the opposite of what I project, I'll eat my hat, you know, things like this, you know, <laughs> and it's like, but you fail to take into account um, unconsciousness, really, yeah, exactly. like, you fail to take into account the power of narratives to shape reality and, you know, um, and because it's easy to dismiss when it doesn't agree with your own narrative, like you can call it fake, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not saying that there weren't fake things being promulgated, but at the same time, um, they're extremely motivating to people. That they, they, they communicated with certain people at a level that caused them to that that I shouldn't say cause, but uh, contributed contributed to them behaving in a certain way. I remember I I remember waking up after that evening and saying to myself, you know, everybody needs to go back and read Civilization and its discontents again, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I feel like it makes sense, you know, there are all these other forces in our world that are moving us back to the, toward the 19th century anyway. So that being the case, Freud becomes relevant again because Freud was also coming out of the 19th century. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we, we should remind ourselves of some of the virtues of what Freud has to say about the human mind and uh, its capacity to, to be manipulated. Yeah. Uh, Young too. I was I, there's yes. a big resurgence of Jung stuff because uh, I recently came upon a it looks like a Bible, but it's it was it was the Red Book. I say recently, I mean like a year <laughs> ago. Um, and I thought to my, I thought, oh, I didn't even, 
I didn't even know this is out. And then all of a sudden I look around and, you know, that collective unconscious, ironically enough, like grabbed Jung and like brought him back up. But it's it's yeah. worth looking at. It's worth kind of analyzing people's dreams and understanding that most of what we do is not a one-to-one rational. And by most, I mean probably in the 90 percentile maybe. Um, so, <laughs> and that's, I mean, I think that that does also kind of just bring it back to how it's important for people, I think, to get in touch with maybe art and how art works and stop thinking that, you know, math and rationality and things like that can fix everything because it can't. I th- Yeah. Which is also, also uh, as, as a side note, uh, I think social media made everybody insane. I think that gave us all brain poisoning for sure. Well, I mean, but that's one of the best places where you can... Um... I mean, you're looking at the collective unconsciousness of our culture when you look at social media, mm. right? It's just yeah. been exposed in a way that we've never been that we've never seen before, mm-hmm. right? Because it's so easy to, um, I mean, to me, uh, yeah, it's just so easy to reveal yourself even if you don't think that you are. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not. There's nothing transparent about social media. The only thing that's transparent about it is the view it opens to the opacity of, of human being. You know what I mean? Like, right. you know, like you think you know someone, for example, and then you see something that they do on social media and you're just like, how could that be the same person? Yeah, yeah. Well, and you have to ask yourself, who is the real person in, in this situation? Um, and then, it, the, you know, then you get into uh, other questions about, well, how stable is the self anyway and, and mm-hmm. so forth and so on. Uh, which again, like that's, you know, that's where narratives uh, have traditionally offered us something of value. You know, the, the first sort of, if I can use this term very loosely, the first sort of science in the West anyway, um, around consciousness is stories, you know, Interesting. I mean, that, that's the Oedipus story. You know, the the great joke about Oedipus in a way is, oh, he's the smartest guy in all of Greece, but he doesn't know who he is. Mm. You know, how can that be? Um, and when he does know himself, he knows the complete horror of selfhood and wants to destroy himself. Mm. In some versions of the Oedipus story, he succeeds and in other versions of it, he just maims himself and, you know, you know, has to be expelled from society and, um, so forth and so on. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think so, that, I think that also, I think that, uh, there was a reason why there was a Lovecraft resurgence and it had nothing oh, to do yeah. with, uh, had nothing to do with like scary tentacles or anything like that. No, I, I think, uh, Lovecraft, there are two ways you can go with it. There's the, there's the evil way, the racism, right. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which was coming back in a big way. Um, well, it never left not coming back. But also just, I think, like, the whole staring into the abyss and the abyss staring back, the Nietzsche stuff. Um, I think that Lovecraft was just super ahead of his time. And his general agoraphobia and uh, sort of, like, disgust for people and, yeah, I mean, especially people of color. um, (laughs) Yes. Sadly, yes. Yeah, kind of, uh, kind of, you know, it was able to predict sort of what I think is happening to all of us when we stare into that magic crystal ball of human unconsciousness yeah. and, and, you know, we're not quite ready to see it so starkly in a way. I think that a lot of what he's doing, he felt like the storm coming basically. Yeah. He, he to me is a lot like Philip K. Dick in that they're writers whose ideas I find fascinating, though I don't necessarily enjoy reading their work anymore. I mean, I loved Lovecraft in high school. Um, I, you know, I still have very fond memories of reading at the mountains of madness for the very first time. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one, you know, Lovecraft is a classic paranoid, which means he's a great storyteller in one sense. Um, because the point of his stories often is the, the, when you look at, reality and start thinking about history and putting things in a sort of cosmological context the sheer scale of what we do not know and what we assume in order to fill what we don't know 
is what's really frightening. Mm. Right? And what if you were to see what was really behind that? Mm. You're not going to like it. You know, which is basically Slava Zizak has made a career out of writing about that very thing in his own way, which I find really interesting. Um, I think Philip K. Dick in particular is an incredibly prescient writer. Um, uh, my wife and I always talk about a book that is often not um, discussed of his called Martian Time Slip. Where uh, are you familiar th- with that book? No, I'm not. It's really interesting. Um, the main character is somebody who is an academic who can't get a full-time job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is basically like, you know, in adjunct hell. And, uh, you know, this book came out in like 64. And um, everybody in, in the society is, a, is mentally ill, basically. They've been made mentally ill um, by forces in the culture. Um, I can't remember all the details, but like you read that book and and you feel like you're just basically reading a slightly skewed version of our present reality. Yeah. And, um, because he under, at some level, Dick understood the, the, the primary forces and systems, um, that create our cultural reality in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, and the sickness that's at the heart of them, um, and uh, those forces have not changed in some ways. They've evolved. They've become more clever and more pervasive. But, yeah. you know, they're still basically after the same things they were always after. <laughs> yeah, they have. The, yeah, they're, they're the exact same. It's just that now they have uh, complete and total access to all your data. Um, right. <laughs> you, you know, uh, yeah. so I think that, oh, man, it would I don't think Dick would have made it this far honestly oh, hell no. there's just there's just no way he would he would have taken himself out but yeah no i think that reading um work like his and uh a lot of other paranoids this is a, a little fact about me i spend a lot of time uh not a lot of time but a decent amount of time on the internet looking at uh like conspiracy websites and mm-hmm. people who really are paranoid um there are several who call themselves uh synchro mystic which is a uh-huh. Fun, fun way of saying that their their pattern recognition software is broken <laughs> to, to right. the point where they just they see patterns everywhere but there was a quote in the new york times by somebody who i cannot remember it just it just stuck with me but the the quote is is uh the the paranoids are the only people who notice anything anymore um right so the reason why i tend to read some pretty it can get I have a whole other digression about how conspiracy theory tends to tie in very directly with uh, racism and transphobia and homophobia in a really kind of gross way that I'm not obviously comfortable with. But so I'm kind of traversing, not like Stormfront or anything like that, but like right. some, some pretty weird, sketchy places. But the, the thing sure. is, is that they're the only ones who are able to kind of make connections on a level that a lot of people just can't do anymore. And I find a lot of value in that, you know, it's like the kind of, uh, Charles Fort model of understanding oh, reality, yes, if, if that makes yes. sense. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Charles Fort, of course. Absolutely. I mean, there's also something to how a lot of the ways that we are taught to read, you know, if we study literature at, in, at the, uh, college university level, is being educated in a paranoid mode, mm-hmm. right? Hermeneutics are kind of paranoid because what, what are you told to do, right? You're told to, to look for the patterns and to, to find the significance behind the apparent thing in the text, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's a kind of paranoia. The real meaning is off to the side somewhere. It's not, it's not necessarily where you think it is, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, which I also find really, really, really fascinating because it, it can be a much healthier form of paranoia, but there are these commonalities uh, that I find really fascinating. Um, it's like it's sort of like reading literature allows you to safely go a little bit insane for a short time mm-hmm. when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Right? Even if you're reading like the most you know canonical sort of literature, but like if you're reading Don Quixote, you're going a little bit insane for the time that you're in Don Quixote, which is one of the great pleasures of that novel because mm-hmm. you're occupying the same state 
or the same space as a main character, a, a hero who is clearly mentally compromised. <laughs> sure, sure. Right, but you're also um, your 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 mind is split, your consciousness is split in these really interesting ways that we would not allow outside of the space of literature. Um, but it's okay within that realm, and and it it becomes a question then of how is that connected to pleasure? Mm -hmm. What's pleasurable about it, and what are we getting out of it? Sort of to take it back to a very early topic of this conversation there's something utilitarian in it mm -hmm. right yeah. what is that thing I, I don't know that i have an answer for it but it's one of the things that keeps me interested in fiction um of a certain sort um for sure yeah i don't uh, i don't know either that's <laughs> i was trying to think of something clever to say but I think you might have kind of touched on sort of the ultimate question <laughs> which in in a sense is just uh why why are we doing this like yeah. <laughs> nobody knows it's like well I, I don't know it does something but I'm, I'm not entirely sure what that thing is so you're talking about you know going momentarily crazy when yes uh, when you read uh, <laughs> how does that then by extension how does that work when you're writing something by oh and also thank you for teaching me how to pronounce crepuscule oh sure <laughs> Did, didn't know i was saying cre cre okay. crepuscule that's um, all right it's a difficult word <laughs> it, it, it's a tough one right but like so how does that affect the kind of mindset that you go into when you're writing this kind of like frankly just like crazy ass book right yeah uh you know it's um one of my teachers was Steve Erickson, and I remember Steve once gave a, a talk where um, he said something to the effect of, Steve is very character-driven. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things Steve talks about is, you know, if you know Steve's work, uh, like the things that, that sort of uh, come to your attention maybe the first time you read Steve are the, um, the, the, the apparent sort of surrealistic aspects of his work. You know, he creates these worlds where the laws of reality are suspended. Um, time and space don't work the same way. Uh, Shadow Bond, his most recent book, I think is an incredible example of that. And that stuff works really great in an elevator pitch. But at their core, Steve's books are rooted very deeply in character and sort of classic notions of character, which I find really fascinating. Like, I hesitate to say that he's conservative when it comes to character, but in a sense he is because he believes in the value of a character being the thing that can pull you through a book no matter how um, outlandish it gets and how much it requires of your suspension of disbelief, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Character is the thing that, that the character is the phenomenon that grounds you in the literature. Sure. Um, so he talked about how for him, you know, all of his books start with a character and a character kind of arrives on the scene, kind of visits him and speaks to him. And he's in sort of a listening, transcribing, channeling state. And I remember him saying, I know it sounds like a bunch of mystical hoo <laughs> which is kind of funny to hear him pronounce those words, but he said, it's the only way I can think to describe it. And so when I talk to people about um, that novel, my novel, it, it was very similar. Um, it does feel it, channeled, man. There's yeah, a lot there, of stuff that feels channeled in there. there there's there, the character of Nellie was the thing or the phenomenon, I should say that Nellie herself, whoever, whatever, I mean, obviously she's an aspect of me, in some sense, right? Like I created her, so to speak, that character anyway, not the real person mm -hmm. whose name she shares. Um, anyway, that character came and had things to say, and I was just listening, hmm. right? So um, the writing of that book was definitely sort of moving back and forth between states of... Um, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just writing. I wouldn't say it's automatic writing in any way, shape, or form, but it's probably closer to that than maybe composition as, as it's traditionally understood. Um, you know, I'm writing. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just sort of following this thing and, and seeing where it goes, and I'm not sure where this voice is coming from, but it's compelling to me, and so I'm recording it. And then taking a step back from it, 
coming back to the language, looking at it as language, looking at it as material in an artistic sense and saying, what's this trying to do? How can I help it get where it seems like it wants to go itself? Um, so that's why I always uh, respond to the question, um, you know, about writing. Like, what do you write about? Well, I write in order to figure out what it is I'm writing about. Sure. Um, you know, that, that, that definitely is sort of my mode. Um, that's not to say that I didn't have ambitions or particular uh, agendas when I first started uh, the novel, but those kind of fell away, thank God, um, as the characters came to life and the situations um, became more dramatic, for lack of a better term. Um, and that drama comes entirely from the, the interactions of the characters. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And I, I, I love what, that you said that too, that th- your initial ambitions kind of fell away because that might be one of the biggest humps that writers have to get over when they start working on a project. Um, yeah. Almost everything that I've worked on has started out with a singular image or like a creature or a surreal happening. And only in one case, in one book of mine, did that kind of symbol even make its way into the book so it's kind of like it feels almost like the characters they bait you with like a shiny thing they're like hey come (laughs) over here do that you'll get to do this and then you get to it and almost every single time uh and so i'm really happy to hear this is true of you as well you end up having to kill that thing it's like oh you thought that you were going to bring this thing into light but you're going to have to kill the one thing that made you start writing this fucking thing in the first place. Oh, uh, yeah. A hundred. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the first draft of Crepuscule was actually a short story that was surrounded by, I don't know, eight, nine, ten other short stories about other jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that 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 the monk story, as it was, I thought of it at the time, was just one component of this larger narrative. And, you know, it was trying to deal with issues of race and um, oppression and um, legacies uh, of the 20th century in a very specific and uh, self-conscious way. And of course, that's all the material that fell off because it was terrible. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> nobody, nobody, you know, like that, that, like it's just whatever. Like, you know, it, it's actually completely opposite. Like, if you're going to write about those things, you get to them through. The particulars, not the the generalities, right? For but sure. the generalities were the thing that drew me into the thought of, "Hey, I'll write this in the first place," um, which kind of goes back also to, um, again, that's not necessarily a comforting message for um, aspiring writers because, uh, hey, guess what? That means there's a tremendous uh, lack of efficiency. Uh, that you maybe have to make a make peace with when it comes to writing long form fiction, right? Like, totally. you know, I, I guess Stephen King is probably pretty um, pr- efficient <laughs> in his writing in that sense, but in my experience, there is no efficient efficient way to write a novel. Oh, dude, <laughs> just ask my long suffering Kickstarter backers, who <laughs> I was so sure that I had the, these books finished, and uh, you know, it's two years later. But the thing is, man, is I don't know how else to describe it other than it just it does it doesn't feel right till it feels right, and there's yes. sort of nothing that you can do. And I, I this is a little anecdote, but I sort of like unlocked what was wrong with my block in the first place, you know. So, so I'd written this short book called Black Gum, and um, it was kind of a chronicle of my drug times in Oklahoma, and it ended with this very kind of surreal dream sequence. And so I thought after that I would be able to just go out and keep writing books, and. The whole time, like I have these sketches and I've I've written up this stuff, and in the back of my mind, I know it's all shitty, but I'm like, okay, but technically, I'm close to being done. I mean, I have these manuscripts, and they're each between thirty and forty thousand words. That's that's I'm, I I don't really do big books, but um, but I realized that what was trying to get through the whole time was that I actually needed to go back and do as corny as it sounds, just a lot of like work on myself with exercise and meditation and not drinking and fighting with cigarettes as much as I could. And then after that, I needed to write like a companion piece to this other book 
of uh-huh. like getting out the other side because I I think that my artistic subconscious was stuck in like this hole that I had written myself yeah. into. I had to write myself out. So basically, the 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 point that I'm trying to make, talking about myself on a podcast where I'm supposed to be talking to you, it's um, okay, <laughs> <laughs> is that that you have to kind of learn what you actually are supposed to be writing. And I think that too many people look at blurbs on books and see tour divorce or, you know, a a stunning meditation on race and sex and whatever. And people set out to myself included at one point, not anymore, but at one point set out to write, you know, stunning meditations on sex and race and, you know, or like it's, it's almost like you're, you're trying to write the blurb version of a book in your head and then you realize oh you know what this is actually just a book about uh you know turtles and it's fine right it's cool yeah <laughs> but it's it's also about much more than that no i think that for me um as i think about it you know at this point in my life literature and novel writing for me in particular is like the the slowest form of improvisation in the world <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah. Of improvisation as being very much in the moment and, you know, it's spontaneous. And yes, there are forms of improvisation that are predicated on that. But in, 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 and improvisation is a subject that's very interesting to me as well, because I think it, it dovetails nicely with that question about mind. Mm-hmm. Like if you, there's a wonderful book. Uh, I'm not going to be able to remember the title of it now. I think it's called thinking jazz. Actually, it's this massive book. And it's mostly interviews with practicing jazz musicians about what is improvisation? Like what's happening with you when you improvise, right? And the vast majority of them are are relaying a narrative that kind of boils down to don't think that what happens in improvisation is thinking, hmm. right? It is, it is some state in which mind and body achieve a relationship, a harmony, if you will, with each other that there's not really a name for, hmm. right? The, the, the language starts to break down, wow. you know? Um, I think athletes understand it. Totally. It's, you, you do the reps, and then when it's time to perform, you're out there on the field, and things just happen. Your body knows what to do without you thinking it mm-hmm. um, in a classic sense. Um, and so for me, when the writing is working... And I've told this story about crevice school with Nellie before. Um, I remember coming back to certain portions of that book and rereading them and thinking to myself, I have no idea where this came from. I don't remember writing this. I don't, it's not like I entered some fugue state, you know, but the language was so foreign to me and I had no sense of where it could have sprung from in terms of my own sort of short term memory of my experience. Mm hmm that I felt like that's a signal that something's happening here that I need to honor and do more with. And I'm not ready to give up on this yet because um, if it feels like it's written by somebody else to me, that's where it needs to be, right? Like if I'm hearing my own voice in it very strongly, um, it's not doing what it needs to do. Right, 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 right. It's, it's not honoring its subjects either. Um, but to get there required a lot of reps and a lot of the kind of, uh, to use another jazz uh, phrase, woodshedding. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, no, yeah. I think what you're describing is a flow state, right? So it's like uh, that guy, uh, Chick Set Me High, I think is how you pronounce the yeah. guy's name. Uh, uh-huh. Is he, he talks a lot about like this flow state and you talk about how athletes get into it, jazz yeah. musicians and stuff. What's so funny and I hate to bring it back to this, is that I recently saw like an online course, like how, oh, really? how to get into the flow state yes. in eight easy steps. And it's like, Jesus <laughs> Christ, people, come on. Is yeah. nothing sacred? Oh my yeah. God. But I'm so sorry. The, yeah, Woodshed. the woodshed is a, is a really fascinating um, uh, expression because at one level it makes sense, right? Like you go to the woodshed, it's like the workshop, right? So it's practice. Mm-hmm. You're practice, you're practicing, you're practicing. You know, the, 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 the sort of legendary stories about John Coltrane practicing for hours and hours on end, playing scales in every conceivable direction and permutation and studying harmony and, and knowing harmony backwards and forwards. And yes, that's also the woodshed. That's the woodshed. But the woodshed is also the place where you go when you get a beating. Oh, right? wow. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, 
it's also this the 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 term the term itself also acknowledges um the the severity of the discipline involved right like you're you are you are in a state of submission to yourself mm. in a weird sense um and unless you whip yourself into shape so to speak the, you're not going to be able to do what you want to do in the moment right which is play this this thing that nobody has ever heard before and nobody's ever going to hear again yeah um to me the the living musician there are two living musicians well i should say three there are three living musicians that still embody that and they're all of advanced age mm -hmm. <laughs> but they're sort of the last of the great jazz masters and that's uh that are still alive um that's sonny rollins uh cecil taylor and lee konitz and they're all they could not be more different from each other and you would not want to probably hear a band that includes all three of them right <laughs> Right. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, Sonny Rollins in particular has, has discussed this, uh, subject at some length and, um, uh, talk about an expert in the subject. I mean, Sonny Rollins is a true improviser in that he makes it new every time he plays. Hmm. Uh, the band's level of inventiveness is just astonishing. Um, and so, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that I always aspire to that in my writing, but certainly in the course of, of writing that novel, uh, you know, I was thinking about all of those things in part because uh, it felt to me that the form and the method had to um, work with the subject matter in that way. Like, I couldn't write the thing that needed to be written about that milieu, about that world, without sort of replicating as best I can understand it, what it means to be a jazz musician. Hmm. Um, not that I would necessarily want people to read it and feel like it's the novelistic equivalent of jazz, if you know what I mean, like that it's purely ekphrastic or a, like um, trying to be jazz in its own way. Um, and I think it fails in a lot of ways, which I think is also important. But I, I guess what I would say is I would hope people feel the effort of a kind of sympathetic imagination in that respect. Like this is prose that is in the way it's constructed in the way that it's, um, making sounds and, uh, moving itself forward in a narrative is, um, giving me some glimpse into the process that, um, jazz musicians have to cope with and have to deal with. You got time for just like one more question? Sure. Okay, cool. So you're in the woodshed, right? Yes. You're uh, <laughs> you're 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 practicing your scales. What what's the writing version of scales then? Like what, what what's what's the practice that goes into That's it? Because, a great question. Yeah. I but, do. Go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go I was ahead. just gonna say I do a lot of lists. I, I you know I also write poetry. I've also published two books of poetry. I don't really consider myself a poet. I I I've turned to poetry because. Um, for some utilitarian reasons, um, I, I can't spend another, you know, like novels are just so exhausting and they require so much investment of time. And sometimes what, sometimes what I want to express needs to be expressed more quickly and, and poetry allows for that. Like there, I'm not a short story writer. I'm a terrible short story writer. I don't really have a strong appreciation for the short story form, I often get yeah. I often get very frustrated with short stories because they feel so dependent upon tropes yeah. to me. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, poetry does as well. But um, that's a whole other conversation. But there's something about the um, the the limited scope of a poem that right. I find very attractive, and the thought that you could spend two weeks and produce a really fine poem and feel really good about it. Um, Whereas you can't really write a novel in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can. I think that's a really interesting uh, sort of constraint, conceptual-based um, uh, exercise for someone. I don't know that I could deal with that. Like that, that just that just kind of goes against my grain really, really hard. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of lists. I have, um, I have, I send myself a lot of text messages, right? Mm -hmm. so and language occurs to me. Um, I often am not in a place where I can write it down, but I try to capture it before it goes away. And I send myself a lot of text messages. I just, um, I just, uh, give myself permission to 
uh, be open with or be open to and um, be engaged with language as much as possible um, in a playful sense, in a real sense. Um, and I just, I'm just writing like just the act of writing all the time, hmm. right? Like I even think about the emails that I just have to do for work. Like those are still helping my writing in some way because I'm engaged in the act of writing at some level I'm conscious of here I am doing something with words again, hmm. right? It's all going to go into the mill, right? So I guess the answer to that question is that I'm never not out of the woodshed mm-hmm. uh, in a sense. Um, but sometimes I'm more in the deep, dark reaches of that woodshed than not. Right, right. (laughs) Sometimes I'm like, uh, like Will Byers in that, uh, I go all the way through the matter of the woodshed to the, the upside down. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. That's awesome. That's a great answer. Well, Hey Joe, thanks so much for your time, man. Well, thank you so much for this conversation and, and, Uh, the places it ranged. I was very glad to talk with you.